So you probably realize by now that Cameron's not preaching, and it's Advent. That means we're four weeks from the Christmas season. And what are we doing? Whew, we're thinking about Christmas, but are we really thinking about Christmas? And that's going to end up being the message today, but before we begin... I want to give you the verse. The verse is Jeremiah 29, 11, and that's where Cameron would say, hey, start looking for it, find it in your Bible app, turn to it in your Bible. And in the meantime, Cameron would tell us a pastor's type, type story that ends in groans and moans and maybe elicits a few chuckles and then a lame punchline. But I'm not, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you a story, and it's a story that I think falls right in line with the message today, which is a message of hope. It's a story of how I came to be standing in this position here and how it uh, started, stopped, started, stopped. And Jeremiah 29, 11, it tells you that God has plans for each one of us. He has hope for us. He plans to prosper us. He has a future for us and so on and so forth. So when I was a junior in high school, and if you keep track of the years as I go along, you'll realize that I really am that old, right? Um, my parents announced that we were moving to Chicago. And I was like, boo, worst move ever. 16 years old, have to go to a new high school in a new city where I know no one. I had the perfect plan already laid out for my life. I mean, I had been going to Catholic school for the last 11 years. I had been in church nearly uh, seven days a week every one of those years. I had the same friends. I was planning to go to college and study to be a Marianist brother and join the Catholic ministry. And then we moved to Chicago. And instead of joining the ministry, I joined the army. And for the better part of the next decade, I ran as far away, kind of like Jonah running from Nineveh, I ran as far away as I could from my faith and the foundation that I had all those 11 years. And I did see things, I saw things, I experienced things that should have never happened. And then in 1984, the Army sends to me, me to my most challenging assignment. What I didn't know was that it would also be one of the most personal struggles I would have in my life. And it would be God saying, it's time to come back. So when I felt that tug to return to the church, I started going to Immaculate Conception, which was a Catholic church, which was what all I had ever known. And by the time I felt comfortable there and, and approached the pastor about joining that church, he told me there were two problems. One, I was married outside the church. Actually, there were three. I was married outside the church. My wife was not a Catholic. And three, their church was not in the boundaries where I lived, so I could not be a member there. So still living in the kingdom of me at that time, I decided I'll walk down the street. There's a Disciples of Christ Church, and I'll join that. And I did, and I became immersed in that church. And, and you'll hear me use that word a couple times today because immersed is a word that means invested, all in. And for the next 20 years, that's what I was at that church. I led VBS. I led children's ministries. I was part of the youth and middle school programs. I was a member of the church board and so on and so forth. And then in 2008, when I was serving at church camp, 
there was a, uh, a question that came out, and it said, is there anyone here who's looking to go into full-time ministry? So I raised my hand, stepped out, started applying and interviewing for positions, and nothing, absolutely nothing happened, even though at the time I had been serving as an interim youth pastor at my current church. Well, life moved on. I married Karen. We moved to the Woodlands, or to Atascacita, started attending the Woodlands Church, get immersed there with Bible studies, community groups, uh, serving communion after church, and so on and so forth. But it's there that we heard Pastor Cameron preach. And that's what eventually led us here to Westlake five years ago, was the fact that we could listen to him, and every Sunday it seemed like he was talking directly to us. He was communicating directly to us. He was preaching straight out of the Bible, but relating it to each one of us. And so about a year ago, Al Cott comes up to me and he asked me if I would be interested in a bigger role in the church. And my first thought was, wow, that is crazy, right? That is humbling. Because here was somebody that was asking me to step into a calling that I had felt for the better part of five decades. Now you probably know how old I am. Um, but for the better part of five decades, I had felt that calling. And now someone was saying that they didn't see my unworthiness for God. They saw my usefulness for God. And so here I am today. <clears throat> now, having listened to Pastor Cameron along the years, not only is he a great teacher, but who else tells dad jokes like Cameron, right? <laughs> and every good sermon I learned is led by good dad jokes. So I brought a few for you guys here today <laughs> so that you would not miss him. The first one is why was the snowman in the produce section at Kroger's looking at the carrots? You're right, he was picking his nose, <laughs> which means that you probably need a little sanitizer to clean your hands now. For all the musicians in the house, do you know who the favorite singers are at the North Pole? Spruce Springsteen and Elfish Presley. And for the motorcycle enthusiasts, did you know that Santa owns a Holly Davidson? And finally, Last one, and I'll finish it there. What do the bakers cover up the gingerbread man with at night? A cookie sheet. <laughs> and as Cameron would say, you guys can use any of those jokes this week because you know you want to. So we got the good dad jokes out of the way. On to the good message. And one more line to steal from Cameron. If you haven't found Jeremiah 29, 11, I can't wait for you any longer. <laughs> Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. If you ever thought about the word hope, it's kind of like the word love in that it's been hijacked by the world. Hope doesn't mean that we're anticip are excitedly anticipating the arrival of Santa and the gifts. Hope is really 
the free gift from God that came through the birth of his son, Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end, the one who was lying in the manger on that first Christmas morning. You might ask, though, why do we really need hope anyway? And I'm glad you asked. We need hope because we have a sin problem. You see, ever since Adam and Eve shared the apple, we've had that problem. It's why we rebel against God. It's why we live more in the kingdom of me and less for the kingdom of God. It's why we can be prejudicial. It's why we can be reactionary in a way that seems to be rude and unappreciative a lot of times. It's why we can be disobedient and broken and lost in a chaotic world. And that's why we need hope when Jesus came and why we still need hope today. Spiritual hope takes work. And if you take no other notes today, this is what I would be writing down. It requires us to remember the past while living in the present and looking to the future. Spiritual hope is a product of our faith grounded in God. So, 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes, and we're still searching for the hope of the world. And Christmas is a really good example because if you think about it, what are we considering at Christmas? It's 660 hours away from today, 27 and a half days, 660 hours, 30,900 minutes, and a mere 2.3 million seconds. And we're thinking about what are the Christmas cards we got to write and get sent out? What are the presents we have to get bought, wrapped, and put under the tree? What are the decorations that have to be put up? What food do we have to make? And so on and so on and so on. But you can't spell Christmas without Christ. But where is he on the list? That's the question. So how do we recreate Christmas, so to speak? And I'd like to give you an idea. Close your eyes if you like. If not, just sit there and listen and imagine that you are a shepherd on the hillside outside the town of Bethlehem. It's a starlit, starlit night. The sheep are grazing on the hillside. And suddenly, the sky is filled with a light that's so bright you have to shield your eyes from it. And then you hear, glory to God on the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men. You're terrified and frozen in fear. And then the angel stands before you, Luke chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and he says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be all for all the people. Today in the city of David is born a Savior. He is Christ the Lord. And you look at the other shepherds, and almost in unison you say, We must go meet the Savior. And you drop everything and go. And as you approach the stable, you see the oxen and the other animals there. You hear a quiet stillness. And then you see the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in the manger. And you say, look, it's the Savior. And you have been introduced to the hope of the world. Nothing better than that. Listen to the verse one more time. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Did you catch the word all? One of the smallest words in the verse, yet one of the most powerful. Because you see, Jesus didn't come just for the shepherds at Christmas. He didn't come just for the Magi or the Jewish nation. He didn't come for the Roman Empire. He didn't necessarily just come for you or you 
or you or even me. He came for each and every one of us. He came to fulfill a promise, the promise that God makes to each and every one of us, that he will never forget us, never forsake us, never fail us, always forgive us, and love us with a steadfast love that endures forever. A father who loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would die would not perish but have eternal life. So you see, God really doesn't want anything from us, but he wants everything for us. And why? Because it tells us, for I know the plans I have for you. We were chosen by God. We were chosen to be loved by him. We were chosen to be made in his image. We were chosen to prosper. We were chosen to have a a relationship with him. We were chosen because he had plans for us. And we have hope because we are chosen. Do you remember the story of the paralytic from Luke chapter 5? It's the story where the friends cut the hole in the roof and dropped Jesus down. Well, we're going to watch a short clip, I think, of that particular episode. And I want you to pay particular attention to what Jesus and the friends' interaction is. Do we have it? Wait a minute. Okay. All right, we don't have it. So I'll tell you what the interaction was. The interaction was that the friend is standing on the roof, and she's staring down at Jesus, and she says, Jesus, I know what you did for the lepers out on the road, and I need you to do this for my friend. And he's looking up at her, and she says, finally, you are his only hope. Only you can do this. And they lower the friend down to Jesus. Can you imagine what it must have took to have faith like that in Jesus? To do that at that moment? And it took people, his friends, taking action to make something happen for their friend's salvation and healing. So think about this. If he'll do that for them, what will he do for us? You see, when Adam and Eve left the garden, Jesus still took care of them. God still took care of them, I should say. Genesis 3.21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And Moses, Moses was a stutterer. Yet when he got before the king, the pharaoh, what happened? He was smooth and elegant, or eloquent, I should say. He may have been elegant, too but he was eloquent also. Think about Joshua at the walls of Jericho. Joshua may not have played the greatest music in those trumpets, but the walls came tumbling down. And God does that for us. And he will do that for us. There's other examples we could go into, but I'll leave that for you. The one thought you might want to think about, though, is when you see one set of footprints in the sand, remember that that is God carrying you through a time in life that you probably don't want to be going through. It's God fulfilling a promise to take care of you, God fulfilling a promise to give you hope and a future, a hope born out of obedience. And what is obedience? Submission to God's will. Obedience is an act of love, an act of trust, an act of faith in God. 
But obedience is never easy. That's the catch. You see, Satan's been at this a long time. Satan knows what he's doing when he's whispering in your ear. Do you really think God can use you? Do you really think he cares about you? Do you really think he has a future for you? Do you really think he wants to prosper you? The devil gets in our head and starts talking and we start listening. But what if we were in God's word every day? What if we got up and put on the full armor of God, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit? We wouldn't be wondering where our hope was anymore. We'd be living in our hope. And that's the importance of being in the word. Jeremiah 29, 11, one more time. For the plans I know, the, for the, let me spit this out. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. He doesn't just say it, he declares it. That's a big difference. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Because of his declaration, we don't have to be consumed by a world that last year spent $834 billion on Christmas. That's staggering. $834 billion and not one penny brought any of us closer to salvation. Not one penny brought us any closer to a relationship with the Father. Matthew 6.24 tells us that no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and and man. Each Advent, as we're called to prepare ourselves for the remembrance of the Savior and the heralding of his second coming, we have to remember the Father has not forgotten or given up on any one of us. Look at me, perfect example, in my opinion anyway. I ran as far away as I could for almost a decade, and here he has me standing on this stage talking about hope. I would have never imagined that even 15 years ago. So Advent is about the one who came to fulfill the promise of God. Nothing in this world happens by accident. Nothing is a coincidence. Everything happens for a reason and a purpose, and that reason and purpose to bring you and I back to God. He wants one thing from us. And we have the hardest time giving him that. He wants a relationship with each one of us. I was going to bring my other Bible, but Karen felt like it is so worn and torn up that by the time I picked it up, every page would fall out of it. So I brought the good one. But this is, by the acronym, the basic instructions before leaving earth. If we don't know what's in this book, how do we know what God expects from us? If we don't know what's in this book, how do we know God's desire? How do we know God's heart? How do we know Jeremiah 29, 11? The answer is we don't. And it's really difficult sometimes to get in the word. I can tell you that from personal experience, something that I have done. And maybe you want to try this, maybe you don't. But, you know, you hear people say, get up in the morning First thing you do, go find a quiet place and pray. I found the most difficult time getting up at 5.30 in the morning intentionally and going and praying. So what happens for me is 
I usually wake up 1, 2, or 3 o'clock in the morning. And when I wake up, that's when I get up and I go pray. And it might be for 10 minutes, it might be for 20, might be for 30, or until I fall back asleep. But I literally get up, walk in our dining room, there's a, a cross of walls hanging there, and I kneel down before that, and that's how I do my prayer time. Maybe that's something you might like to try to do to be able to get into the word a little bit more. And the reason why I say that, and maybe this is something that um, you guys might be shocked at. We mentioned that Christmas spending last year was $843 billion. This year, it's projected to be $960 billion. And since 2018, over the last four years, in the middle of a pandemic, a recession, and inflation, Christmas spending has risen $200 billion. Imagine that. But contrast that with this. There are 247 million people in the United States who call themselves Christians. 1.5 million tithe. Yet that 247 million make an income of $5.2 trillion. And can you guess what their tithe is? $17 a week. And I bring that up because we have that same pattern in our church. Tithing is not something that's very easy to do. But tithing is an act of worship, an act of trust, an act of faith in God. And I can tell you from personal experience that every time we have continued tithing, even in the face of financial problems, God has provided. We have never gone without. So maybe this Christmas, we might want to give to the church first and then take what's left over and spend it on Christmas. You may have heard of this guy, R.G. Letourneau. R.G. Letourneau was an inventor and a philanthropist. He created the first uh, earth-moving machines uh, that we know today, like bulldozers and things like that. He had a business in the middle of the Great Depression that was $100,000 in debt. By 1938, three years later, his company was on the, on the good side, $1.4 million profit in the middle of the Great Depression. And there were a couple of things he said that really stand out to me. One, he said, God is my business partner. Two, he said, it's not about how much of uh, God's money I give back to God. It's about how much of God's money am I keeping for myself. He lived on 10% of his income. And the other thing he said was, the more, God, or the more I shoveled out, the more God shoveled in. And he had a bigger shovel. And I thought, that is unbelievable, really, when you think about it. So Advent is a time of remembrance, but Advent also brings sometimes tears to people's eyes because it's a season that has its own trials and tribulations, all of its very own. You see, there are people here today that are going to go through the holidays without a certain loved one by their side for the first time. And God knows that. There's people here that are going through financial difficulty, personal struggles, family problems, and so on and so forth. And it's easy to praise God 
when things are going good. It's tough to praise God in the middle of the storm. But there's a song by Phil Wickham called The Battle Belongs. And I think the chorus from that song really illustrates where we should be when it comes to praising God in the middle of the storm. And I don't want Alex to think that this is an audition for me, for the, for the band, but it goes like this. It says, so when I fight, I'll fall on my knees with my arms lifted high. Oh, God, the battle belongs to you. And it does. Jesus came, he saw, he conquered. That is the story of hope this Christmas. And he will carry each one of us through whatever we are going through if we will let him. As we close, I'd like to challenge you with a couple of things. One, this Advent season, spend some alone time with God. You can do it by using the church, and I'll find it here in a second. You can use it by doing this reading guide, or you can find this one online. Pick one up as you leave today. But this reading guide will give you places to be within the book. And it'll help you develop that habit to be able to be meeting with God every single day. And the second one is what I mentioned earlier. Let's give to the church first and then take what's left and spend it on Christmas so that we can remember that the hope of the world was bought by the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No amount of Legos, Hot Wheels, cash, or diamonds will take us into eternity with the Savior. Only the gift of salvation, and we can't buy that. One single act has the power to reverberate throughout the world forever. So on Christmas morning, we can choose to remember that God has plans for us. He has hope for us. He has a future for us. He's going to prosper us or we can spend the rest of our lives chasing the world. The choice is ours.